Would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians and stand with me as we read from God's Word. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14 today. Ephesians chapter 1, 11 to 14. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I've been asked a few times since I started working here at Bethany, why did you become a pastor? And the answer is really very simple. I mean, as I've looked upon my life, I, I realized that it would actually be wrong of me to deny all of you and, and other people the, the gift of myself. I mean, my mom told me at a very young age, you are special, and I believed her. <laughs> and you know what? I, I, I think I deserve a little praise. I think I deserve some accolades, and so I wanted to be in the limelight, and so here I am. And you all recognize how great that I am, right? <laughs> I hope you don't agree with that. <laughs> I am not God's gift to the world. I am not the end-all, be-all. When we see pride or selfishness in someone, we see self-adulation, self-promotion, we're turned off. I, I mean, hopefully you, you understood that I was just kidding right now, but when you see someone and you realize hey, they're sincere, we're disgusted, aren't we? We don't want to have anything to do with that type of person. And I think it's partly because we see through the lie that they're buying into, right? We know that they can't be as important or as significant or as great, as wonderful as they think themselves to be. I think we're partly also turned off because of our own pride. Well, what makes you think that you're so, you think you're better than me? And then I think we're also turned off because we realize it's just a matter of time, right? It's just a matter of time before someone else comes along and is just a little bit better than you. Records are made to be broken, right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we all recognize that pride and self-interest, self-promotion, seeking one's own glory is not a good thing, then what do we do with the God of all creation? What do we do? 
if ever a narcissist existed, it's got to be the God of the Bible, right? Everywhere we look, we see God telling people to worship Him, to fear Him, to give Him glory. And we look at Deuteronomy 5.24, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and greatness. Joshua 17.9, Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Give praise to Him. 1 Samuel 6.5, give glory to the God of Israel. 2 Chronicles 5.14, the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. God made this creation so that it gives Him glory. Psalm 57.5 and verse 11 and 108.5 say, Be exalted, O God. Above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. Isaiah 43, 7. God says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. And we can go on and on. Jeremiah 13, 16, give glory to the Lord your God. Ezekiel 28, 22, I will manifest my glory in your midst. Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest. John eleven four. Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It was for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then one last one, 1 Corinthians 10.41. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And we see it in our passage this morning. It's, it's all about God. He keeps pointing to himself. It's totally God-focused. In verse 11, we see, in him. It's all according to his purpose, the counsel of his will. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him, believed in him. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Again, we see it. And we can go on and on. And this is just scratching the surface of how God's word points to God's glory. And we just come to the conclusion, if we looked through the whole Bible, that God doesn't just seem interested in his glory. He's obsessed with his glory. Is that not a problem? It's a problem for a lot of people. It was a problem for a man by the name of Clive Staples Lewis. Lewis wrote in his book, Reflections on the Psalm, he wrote this, When I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God. Still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. And as Lewis read through the Psalms, he saw how over and over and over again, God directs people to praise him. Lewis wrote, it was hideously like saying, what I want most is to be told, is to be told that I am good and great. 
Lewis goes on to compare God demanding praise, God demanding glory. He compares him to a vain woman wanting compliments or a vain author presenting his new books to people who he had never met and who had never heard him before. The big question this morning is this, is it wrong for God to be so God-centered? And we'll just, we'll just spoil it right here. The answer is no. The answer is no for two very huge reasons. One, there's no one greater than God. And two, because God's glory means our good. As we begun diving into Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we've been reminded over and over again how good God has been to us, the good things he has done. What has he done? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption. He redeemed us through the blood of Christ He forgave us our offenses. He made known to us the mystery of His will. He gave us hope for the future as He promised to one day unite all things to Himself. And now we see in verse 11, we see that He's provided for us a guaranteed inheritance. Look at verse 11 again. 11 and 12. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's, he's making this happen. This was his will, and he's going to make it happen. He did make it happen. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Now notice that Christ came first to the Jews. We, who were the first to hope in Christ. This isn't a new idea. We see it in Romans. We also see it in Matthew. In Romans 1.16, verse you're all familiar with, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And then in Matthew, Jesus says, Matthew 15.24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's where Jesus went. That's who he was to go to first. John 1.11 tells us that he came to his own. But we know his own did not receive him. We know he went to the cross. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. But we also know that three days later, he rises from the dead. And then what does Jesus say to his disciples? Now go. Go into all the world and preach. Now the message is for everyone. So I think the we that Paul is addressing here in verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 1, he's referring to those Jews who have first placed their trust in Christ. But then look at what he writes in verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now he's talking to the Gentiles. Now he's talking to those non-Jews. They were brought into this special relationship with God that Christ made possible. This was God's plan all along, to bring them in. We see that in Isaiah 57, 19. The prophet declares, Peace, peace to the far and to the near 
says the Lord. God has executed his plan to bring salvation and an inheritance to the near, to those Jews who had already been brought near to God at the foot of Mount Sinai when God said, you will be my people and I will be your God. But in his sovereignty, God has also brought salvation to the far. The Gentiles, the formerly not the people of God. And the language that Paul uses here in Ephesians, it's very, very similar to the language that Moses used in Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And here's, here's the very similar part. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. We'll get technical here for just a moment. In Deuteronomy, the verb is translated, God has chosen you. Here in Ephesians, we have the same verb, and it's translated in our ESV, our English Standard Version, it's translated, you have obtained an inheritance. Now, I wrestled with this. There's some debate, there's a lot of debate among scholars as to how to translate this Greek word here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Klerao. It means to be chosen by lot. And here, it's in its passive first person plural form, which allows it to be translated two different ways. It can mean we've obtained an inheritance. It can also mean we have become an inheritance. So the question is, is Paul saying that we have an inheritance in Christ? Or is Paul saying that because of Christ, we have become God's inheritance? And there's good arguments for tr translating it both ways. But here's the thing. After a couple days of wrestling with this, I came to realize that both are true. Both are true here. Just as Israel was chosen by God to be a people for his own possession, we're chosen so that we might be Christ's possession. We're his inheritance. That'd be very reassuring to those Gentile believers. They're, they're in the church, maybe with some other Jewish Christians there, and those Jewish Christians, yeah, they feel pretty confident. Those Gentiles are wondering, well, am I really in? Paul says, yes, you were. You were chosen. You are God's inheritance. And we should be encouraged by that as well. And Jesus said in John 6.37, All that the Father has given me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In other words, God has given Christ a people. In Ephesians 1.18, we're going to study this in a couple weeks, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It's true. God's people are his. They're his lot. They're his inheritance. They're his people. In a very real sense, when you and I place our trust in Christ, we become his possession. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. maybe your mind is already going here, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, 
You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We said a few weeks ago that our adoption into the family of God, that doesn't come cheap. God bought you with the highest price ever paid, the lifeblood of His one and only Son. So we are His. We're His. His possession. His inheritance. But He's also ours. Before we get upset thinking that our precious autonomy has been stripped away, we need to realize that this is a mutually beneficial deal. On July 26, 2003, I was standing in the, the back hall behind the sanctuary with a bunch of other guys, and I was dressed to the nines. I was ready to go ready to enter into the rest of my life. And it was right about the time when my cue was going to be given that my best man tugged on my, on my sleeve and said, hey, there's still time to run. <laughs> I think that's just every best man is required to say that, right? It's just the thing. And then pretend he lost the ring, right? That's how it goes. And I was thinking, what are you talking about? Run? Are you kidding me? Why would I ever do that? I'm clearly getting the better end of the deal here. I'm not going to run. This is for my good. When husband and wife pledge themselves to each other for the first time, they do it gladly, don't they? Gladly. They say their vows happily, full of joy and excitement, because they know that even though they're making a pledge to lose their lives... The covenant that they're making, it goes both ways. Song of Solomon 6.3, we probably don't quote Song of Solomon very much, but this is good. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That's the relationship that we have with God. That's our relationship with Him. It's, it's the sweet, wonderful thing it not only includes our deliverance from the horrible situation that we found ourselves in before Christ, but the beautiful inheritance that comes from being Christ's. God said to Israel in Leviticus 26.9, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept. You shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God. You shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. That's what God says to Israel. To us, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter 1. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love... See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called 
children of God. And for those of us that that would ever doubt whether or not God is going to come true on his promises, Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13 that we were sealed. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Those who trust in Christ, they're sealed with His Spirit. At the moment of faith, the Holy Spirit indwells believers. His presence is now within them, and it's the mark on their life that they belong to God. Paul writes that he seals us. That doesn't mean that he wraps us up with cellophane. It doesn't mean that he does that little Ziploc thing on the bag so that we don't leak out. We're sealed like, like letters or official documents were sealed back in Paul's day. They were sealed. They were signed with a signet ring in wax. The mark was stamped on the document to signify its finality its authenticity, its validity. That's what the indwelling of God's Spirit does for us. And His presence in our lives, it's not just a confirmation of what Christ has done for us. Not just a confirmation. It's the, it's the first taste of our salvation. And the completion of it, that we're, a completion of our redemption, that we're going to experience one day when we see him face to face. It's like, it's like the, the sample taste before the meal. It's like the down payment before you get the full amount. We get the benefit of having God's presence with us every waking moment, don't we? He's there. He's guiding us. He's comforting us. He's correcting us, reminding us when we're starting to wander off. He's bringing peace. He's bringing hope. He's bringing joy. He's empowering us to live lives of worship to God. God's been so good to us. Why? I mean, if what Christ has done is to to bring us to himself, we're now his inheritance and he is now our inheritance, isn't he clearly getting the bad end of this deal? I remember in high school, I had a friend, he was insane. He came to me with his $1,500 guild guitar, and it was beautiful at the time. It's now hanging in my office. He came to me with this guitar and he said, hey, I've got this guitar and I'd like to trade it for your $200 guitar. And I just said, sure. <laughs> I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to question why. I'll just, yeah, that's a, that's a deal that, yes, I will take immediately. God's been so good to us. Why would he do that? Paul gives us the answer. It was for the praise of his glory. Ah, There we go again. 
There we go again. It's all about his glory. Verse 11 to 12, Paul tells us that the Jews, they were the first to hope in Christ. They were predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will so that they might be to the praise of his glory. And then in verses 13 and 14, he turns to us. When we heard the word of God, when we trusted in Christ, sealed with this promised Holy Spirit, and all of that was to the praise of of His glory. You might be thinking to yourself, well, I thought God saved us because He loved us. Yeah, that's definitely true. But the underlying reason, even for His love, is that He might get glory by demonstrating it, by showing it, by pouring it out on all of us. Everything God does is for His glory. He's passionate about it. He's obsessed by it. But is it wrong? Is it wrong for God to be so God-centered? It feels wrong to us. It can feel wrong because we know what it's like for humans to pursue self-glory. They do so undeservedly, don't they? They do so uh, thinking that they deserve undivided glory and praise, and yet they're flawed, they're imperfect, they're, they're limited, they're fragile, they're finite. It's not right for people to be so self-centered because they themselves, they're unworthy. God, on the other hand, I heard it earlier, is totally worthy. There's no one else like him. He's perfect in all his ways. He's flawless in his character. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's absolutely just. He's infinitely powerful, infinitely perfect, infinitely majestic, infinitely better than anything or anyone else in all existence. And because of that, it would be wrong for God to be about anything other than his own glory. I mean, think about it. If the most magnificent being in all existence turned from himself to worship anything else, he'd be lying to himself. And he'd be lying to everyone else in all existence, wouldn't he? Because he'd be saying, this is better than me. He can't do that. Because there's nothing better than him. It'd be kind of like Leonardo da Vinci looking at a, a stick figure that I drew on a napkin and saying, now that's art. <laughs> That'd be ludicrous. It would be insane. It'd be, it'd be wrong. He'd be lying to me. He'd be lying to everyone else. It's right for God to be God-centered because there's no one else better than him to be centered on. He has to be centered on what's best, and that's himself. It's also good and right for God to be all about his glory because our best good, our best good, what's best for us, it's found only in him and nothing else. If there's no one better than God, no better source of peace or hope or joy or, or sustenance, it'd be wrong for God to point us to something that wasn't adequate something that was less than the best. 
it'd just be wrong. A, a vain woman wanting compliments is leading people to praise something infinitely less praiseworthy than God. Me trying to lead anyone to think that I am the greatest or rely on me to meet all of their needs is pointing people away from the one who is truly great and the one who can truly take care of them. It's a good thing that God is God-centered because if he was not, he'd be pointing us in the wrong direction. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, that's evidence. It's evidence that God being so God-centered has resulted in our good. For it was because God set, sought his own glory. That's why he chose us before the foundation of the world. That's why he sacrificed Jesus Christ, that we might be redeemed, forgiven, and adopted into his family. That was for his glory. That's, that's why he lavished his grace upon us, making known to us the mystery of his will. That's why he gave us hope of the future, promised us he's going to unite all things to himself. And, and that's why he's now guaranteed our inheritance with the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's obsession with his glory is for our good. As we wrap this up, it's important that we see what C.S. Lewis came to realize here. That the praise that God wants from us is actually good for us as well. The praise that we're called to give him, that praise, that worship, that's actually good for us. He writes this, the world ring, rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers, their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps. You thought that I went on and on with lists. Rare beetles, and even sometimes politicians and scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most. While the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Everybody praises something. We all praise all sorts of things. And no one twists our arm to do it, right? We go out and look at the, the, the ocean, maybe a sunset, and we let out a sigh of praise. We watch a great movie or a performance or ball game. We eat some, some great new restaurant, and we have to sing their praises to somebody. We're just compelled to do it. We all praise things. And the thing that Lewis came to realize was that the praise we give, it doesn't take anything away from us. It doesn't take anything away, but it actually, it actually adds to and completes our joy in the thing that we're praising. Look at what he writes here. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. That's good, isn't it? That's what's happening 
when God calls us to praise Him. It's Him inviting us to dwell on the one and only true, perfect good in existence and to elevate our joy to its highest point by worshiping and praising Him with reckless abandon. We joyfully sing, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He's beautiful. He's wonderful. There's no one like Him. We praise God because there's no one like Him. Because of what He's done for us. And because our joy is taken to an even greater level as we do it. It's so right for God to be God-centered. It's so right because there's no one better than Him. And because His glory is our good. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. Amen? Lord, we are, we are overwhelmed with Your goodness to us. And we don't even understand it. When it comes to Your goodness, Lord, we just, we, we just have a whiff of it. We're just scratching the surface of who You are. And yet, Lord, it leads us to fall on our knees to raise our hands and give You everything that we are. May we worship You, Lord, because worship of You is the thing You deserve and because it's good. We love You, Lord. Thank You, thank You, thank You for Your goodness towards us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.